grab your Bibles or your Bible app. We're going to be in John chapter 8. You can just kind of put like a bookmark there. Uh, we're going to be diving into yet another story uh, about how Jesus deals with our messes, how Jesus deals with our mistakes. And one thing that I'll say I've loved about this series um, is, is I think a lot of times when we think about Jesus, we think that Jesus was kind of this meek, mild like super nice, never wanted to offend anyone, never wanted to like step on toes. And like, I, I think, you know, even when we think about that version of Jesus, he probably has like this really nasally voice and he's just like, he just wants to be nice, you know. And what we've seen in this series so far is, is Jesus is willing to do things that nobody would do. Jesus is willing to cross all kinds of lines. He's willing to, to take risks. Uh, he's willing to talk to people nobody will talk to. And today we're going to find out what, what it looks like when Jesus really goes head-to-head with some of these people that, that wanted to cancel the kind of people that Jesus really cared about. Uh, so Jesus, I'm learning in this, and, I, and I've loved this side of Jesus, but, but Jesus, he's not always nice, right? Like Jesus, is, he's always kind, but he's not always nice. Like Jesus, there's a, there's a pretty tough warrior side to Jesus uh, that we get to see a lot, especially when it comes to him getting between the people that would want to cancel us, right, and us, right? Jesus is like, listen, if you want to get to them, you're going to have to go through me, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But my family and I had an amazing time over the last uh, 10, 11, 12-ish days uh, when we got a chance to go out of town. One of the places we went to was Folly Beach, South Carolina. Now, If you know anything about Folly Beach, I learned some things. Folly Beach is this kind of stretch, six-mile stretch of oceanfront just south of Charleston. Now, out from Folly Beach, out into the Atlantic Ocean, there are no barrier islands or shoals. And here's what that means. Most like places like Myrtle Beach, places you know that, you, that we typically go to on vacation, things like that, down in, down in Destin, where all of Louisville goes for spring break. It's the great pilgrimage to, to Florida, right? Those places, you know, they've got shoals or there's sandbars or there's barrier islands way out in, in the ocean that slow down currents and tides and waves. There's nothing like that at Folly Beach. So Folly Beach is legendary on the East Coast for being a place that is like surfer's paradise, right? Because the waves are huge. There are big waves, there are big currents, right? And so we got to experience that firsthand, right? So where we stayed was was right on the beach, and, and my boys and I would go out into the water, and these waves were massive, right? They were huge, and the undertow, the current, was crazy. So what happened was basically we kind of parked our stuff in the middle of the beach, and for us to go into the water and boogie board and body surf and all that kind of stuff, like this body is going to get up on a surfboard, right? This body, built like a seal, is great for body surfing, right? It's just, I'm like one big pontoon boat, right? So it's great. I'm very buoyant. Um, the way that this would work is we would have to go, we'd have to start all the way down on one end of the beach, get in the water, do some body surfing and things like that, because as, as we would go across the waves, the undertow would pull us. And so by the time we'd ride a wave in, we'd be all the way down to the other end. So you'd have to get out, walk down to the other end, go out into the ocean, surf a few waves, let the current take you, right? And then you get down on the other end. And after about three or four waves, you are worn out, right, from fighting the current, from riding the waves, from the waves pounding you, right? They're crashing on you. They're, they're huge. And then, honestly, having to do all that extra work of going, listen, I, I can't swim against this current. I can't swim against the tide. So I've got to get out of the water and walk all the way back down the beach and kind of reset the whole thing. And this is what I started thinking about as I started thinking about what we've been talking about, especially as it relates to cancel culture. Because cancel culture has its own tide. Cancel culture has its own current Cancel culture has these waves of anger and outrage that want to just crash and crash and crash. And, and cancel culture, in a lot of ways, is, it's like a mob mentality. And the undertow within that mob mentality is so strong at times that it feels like there's no point in fighting it. Just trying to fight this current, I'm, I'm never going to get upstream, right, because the current is too strong. All you can do is really just go with it. Let that mob mentality undertow of cancel culture take you wherever it's going to go. And in the end, we get kind of pulled along in the same direction with everybody else. So why fight it? Because when you fight it, you just get hit by one wave of, of anger and outrage after another. And the story that we're going to read today is, is really going to look at what happens when, when this kind of undertow, current tide, waves of anger and outrage, mob mentality of cancel culture goes head to head with Jesus. So if you got your Bibles open, John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 2. Here's what it says. It says, early in the morning, 
he, Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So let's just press pause right here so you can kind of get a good idea of what's, of what's going on. Let me just kind of set the scene and refresh some of the things that we've been talking about. So when the Bible talks about early in the morning, it's talking about sun up, right? So this is kind of, this is dawn. The sun is just now starting to come up, up over the hill, right? Because people in this time, they, they got up and they went to bed with the sun, right? They didn't have electric lights and interior lighting and all that kind of stuff. So they had to kind of get up and go to bed with the sun. That kind of dictated how you lived and how you ran your life. So, so sun up is the point, right? That first light is the point when really your day gets started, that's when you're going to work. That's when you're going to be the most productive. Like, you're just getting your day started. And so G Jesus, he comes to the temple, and in this case, he's in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is the, the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. It's the center of all of the religious rule. It's the, the center of all of the religious and self-righteous authority. And, and so John, one of Jesus' really good friends, his best friends, writing down this, this biography of Jesus, he says that, that Jesus, he came into the, the temple in the center of, of town, right, and he sat down to teach everybody that showed up that morning at sunup to hear from him. And you got to remember, we talked about what Jesus' message was, the, the, the message that Jesus preached over and over and over again, kind of his life message, his kingdom message, the, the movement battle cry was this, it was repent and believe, for the kingdom is here, right? And the word repent means to change direction, to turn away from something in order to turn towards something new. And so the thing about this message that Jesus preached, this, this whole repent thing, that really wasn't on the table. People really weren't able to change the direction of their lives. They weren't able to, to, to think about the, the direction that their lives were going because they were under this kind of religious and self-righteous oppression. I mean, you, you, you can't undo. You can't turn away from. There's, that, that option is not on the table. All you can do is try to outwork your sin. Outwork, outdo, pay for all the things that you've done in the past. But Jesus comes along and says, no, here's what you can do. You can repent. You can change the direction of your life. And you can believe. You can have faith in, right? You can be confident in the fact that Jesus' kingdom is here. It's a way that you can live. It's, it's open to you now, which is this, this message, the, the way we've been translating this or the way that Dallas Willard would translate this, it would kind of look like this. Would you like to? Jesus is essentially asking us, and the people back in this day, would you like to rethink your whole life in light of the fact that the kingdom of heaven is now open to anyone and everyone? And Jesus, he can say that. Why? Because he's in charge. He's God with skin on, right? He's allowed to say this. And here's the thing. This message, the message that Jesus would come into places preaching and teaching, it totally flew in the face of everything that the religious leaders and the self-righteous people were teaching. Their message would have sounded more like this. The kingdom of heaven is only open to certain kinds of people. Don't think about or rethink anything about your life. Just do what we tell you to do and don't ever mess up. That would have been their message. Their message would have sounded more like this. Why? Because that kept them in a place of authority. Right, that protected their power, that, that self-righteous power that they felt like they earned, right? that relationship with God that they felt like they deserved, right? this kept them in power. Because listen, it's like, hey, don't, don't think for yourself. Don't think for yourself. Don't do anything about your life. Just do what we tell you to do. And if you mess up, you better be ready to pay for it. That's, that was their message, right? That's kind of what they said. So you can see Jesus and these guys, they're not really going to get along, right? Because Jesus' message really is running the exact opposite direction. It is fighting upstream in terms of the current of religiosity and self-righteousness back in this day. So in their minds, though, the religious leaders, they held all the keys. They held all the keys to cancel culture when it came to who got in God's kingdom and who didn't get in God's kingdom. And what we need to understand is this. Jesus... In this moment, he's on their home turf, right? Jesus, most of his ministry took place in Galilee, which is in the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus, in this case, he's playing an away game, right? He's on their home turf. This is their home court. And Jesus, he's teaching a message that they don't like. Why? Because it takes away their power and their, and their influence. And so as Jesus is showing up at sunup to teach people, people are showing up to listen to Jesus, these self the self-righteous, angry, religious cancel mob 
is getting ready to crash the party. Here's what it says in verse 3. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst, right? And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And it says, John says, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so, again, just kind of want to go through this, right? So when it says that, that they, placed, they placed this woman in their midst, it meant this. They put her up front where everybody was looking at her. Every eye in the place was on this woman. Like in their midst wasn't just, hey, they set her down somewhere in the middle, right? No, no, no. In their midst was they brought her all the way up to the front and stood her in front of everyone and announced to everyone, hey, here's what we caught her doing. What do you say? Here's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. Here's what, here's what the law says we're supposed to do. What do you say? I'm going to pause here for just a second, right? Because how we're going to unpack this story, we're, we're going to look at this whole deal through the, the eyes and through the lens and through the perspectives of three different people, right? The Pharisees, the Pharisees, scribes, and religious leaders, those would be the, the cancelers, they're the ones who are coming in to, to do some canceling that day, right? When, when, they, when the sun came up, right, they woke up that day and went, you know what, boys? Let's go do some canceling. Like, that's our job, right? That's what we're going to do. We're going to make sure some people today understand their place in all of this. So the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, we're going to look at, look at it from their perspective, right, from the perspective of those that were wanting to, to cancel. We're going to look at, the, look at it through the eyes of this woman who was placed in front of everyone in the temple, the most religious, sacred place in the entire country. She now stands most likely naked in front of everyone. We're going to look at it through her perspective. And then we're going to look at it through Jesus' perspective. Because Jesus, he's the real cancelee at this point. Right? He's the one that they're trying to cancel. Th these guys, and you're going to find out here in just a second, right? They're not, they don't really so much care about this girl. They care more about destroying Jesus. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to get a little PG-13 for a second. Because the cancel mob, right, what, what the charges that they bring against this woman is that, that really what they, they, they say is this. She's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the question is this. What's adultery? Right, adultery is this. Adultery happens when someone has sex with a person that they're not married to. Bottom line is this. If, if you're not married to them and they're not married to you, if you're not married and you have sex together, the Bible would say that all parties involved have committed adultery. Now, what we're going to find is that the Bible would say this, this is really, this affects both the man and the woman, right? But in this case, the Pharisees, they just bring the woman. We'll talk about that in just a second, right? The Bible would say that all parties involved in adultery are guilty of sin. And they go, all right, well, that's another churchy word, right? That's another Bible word. What, is, what does it mean to sin? Sin is this. Sin happens... When you and I, when we do something that disagrees with or doesn't line up with what God says is true, good, right, and best. That's what sin is. Sin is basically this. Like when we look at God and go, listen, I know in your word and in your truth it says that, that this way of living or doing this or, or handling my finances like this or, or treating my kids like this or, or treating my wife like this or, or doing my job like this. I know you say that this is good, true, right, and best, but God, here's the thing. I think I can do it better than you, so I'm going to do my own thing. Even if that disagrees with what you say, that's sin. So the question that as I was writing this this week, the question I thought to myself is this, why why does God even care about this? Like, why would God have an opinion, right? Why does he have an opinion? And here's why, right? Especially in this specific instance, the reason God has an opinion is because God created people, right? We were his idea. And we talked about this, uh, you know, a few months ago in our, our men's series. We talked about the, the way that God created man and woman and the fact that he created us, right, as co-equal, right, images of God. Those that reflect the image and likeness of God. He created us to co-rule together, right, so that we reflect him to the world. We know that. God created people. But God also, in creating people, created sex and sexuality. And he gets the say, not a say, God gets the say in how it works in a way that's true, right, good, and best. And what God says is this. The way for sex, sexuality, and intimacy to work in a way that's good, real, right, true, and best is between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. That's the best. 
Why? Like, why, why would God say that? Like, why is that, why is that God's opinion? Why is that God's take? Well, here's why. Because sex is more than just a physical act. The Bible describes it, right, in poetic language as a mingling of souls. It's sacred. It's intimate. It's as emotional and spiritual as it is physical. See, we're the ones that have just dumbed it down to it's just a physical act. And in doing that, we actually ignore or we cheapen what is really 95% of sex and sexuality, which is spiritual and emotional and intimate, right? So God says this, this, this matters. Sex and sexuality matter. I have an opinion. Here's how it works best between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that, God would say that's sin. You're doing something that disagrees with what I say is good, real, right, true, and best. So when it comes to sex and sexuality, God says, handle with care. Right? We talk about this a lot. The, the illustration that I used in student ministry for so many years is when it comes to sex and sexuality, it's like a fire in a fireplace. It's great. Right? A fire in a fireplace is where it's supposed to be. It brings light and warmth to the whole house. But you take that same fire and you set it in the middle of your living room, guess what? The fire hasn't changed. It's exactly the same. Where you put it has changed. You take the fire out of the place that it's designed to be and you put it in the middle of your living room, guess what? It will burn your house down. And some of us know this all too well. We took sex out of the place where it was supposed to be and we put it someplace else and it burned our lives to the ground. Some of us know exactly what that feels like. So the reason that God cares about this is because he wants sex and sexuality and intimacy to not just be good, but be great. See, God cares about protecting intimacy from anything or anyone that would try to steal, kill, or destroy it. I think for a lot of us maybe that grew up in the, in the 90s and kind of like that church purity movement, what we were told is, no, don't, sex, bad, right? And that's, that's not true. We were told to try to avoid things. We were, we were told to, we got to change the way we look at people, right? We, that, we, that, that even men in, this, in that kind of culture are more the victims of like all these temptresses that are out there. And it's just not true, right? That, that really what God wants us to do is, is not look at it and go, no, don't, bad. But God's going, listen, protect intimacy. Protect intimacy at all costs. Why? Because what I want for you is so much better than what you could get for yourself. It's so much better my way between a man and a woman inside the covenant of marriage, this outpouring, this expression of love and intimacy and trust, the mingling of souls, it's so much better. So, so do that. Protect intimacy. Protect the hearts. Guard your heart and the heart of the one you're in a relationship with if you're not married yet. Do that. Fight for that. Why? Because what I want for you is good. And that's why adultery is one of the big ten. You go all the way back to the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. Commandment number seven, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, says this. You shall not commit adultery. That's pretty cut and dry. Like, I, I think there's part of this that I, like, how do you misinterpret that? Right? You shall not commit adultery. Where, like, there's, not, there's no permission there. You shall not commit adultery. But here's the thing. Jesus, Jesus takes this one step further. He says this in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. He says, you've had it heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone, every man who looks at a woman with lustful intent, you've already gone there. You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. I don't know, when I talk to guys about this, it's like, well, why is he only talking to us? Right? It takes two to tango. Here's why. Because guys back in this day treated women more like property than people. And so Jesus is not only leading men in a direction where we can begin to treat women, to treat our wives as the warrior queens that they are, right? But he also wants to make sure, hey, guys, stop looking at people like they're pieces of meat. Stop treating people like they're property. Treat them like they're people. And then Jesus, after he says this, he says, listen, I'm telling you guys, if you even look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already gone there. And then right after these verses, he starts talking about like cutting off hands and gouging out eyes and going to hell, right? I think we can tell it's a pretty big deal, right? It's pretty clear. It's pretty evident that when it comes to adultery, in God's opinion, right, it's a big deal. 
But I need us to see this, right, through Jesus' eyes and from his perspective. I, I listened to a sermon by my friend, mentor, my pastor, Jim Berg, and he said this. He said, the reason that adultery is such a big deal to Jesus is because Jesus knows most people and most marriages won't recover from adultery. Jesus knows that there's a high likelihood that it will ruin your life and the lives of everyone connected to you. See, when we read Exodus 20 and Matthew 5, we have to hear what it's, what's really being communicated, and we have to really understand the heart behind it. See, our Heavenly Father, the creator, the author of life, right, the, the writer of the manual, right, for life, and, and Jesus, his son, the model of how to live life, they both know what adultery will do to us, to our families, to anyone and everyone connected to us. And if saying, hey, don't do this, not only with your body, but also with your heart, and talking about cutting off body parts and going to hell, if that'll get us to pay attention, right? If that will get us to pay attention versus the only time we start paying attention is when attorneys get involved, Jesus will say it. If Jesus is going, listen, let me tell you how big a deal this is. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to cut it off, it's better for you to go through half blind and one-handed than end up in hell. If that will get us to go, huh, say again, say, run, run that last part by me one more time. If that will get us to pay attention versus the only time we pay attention or when we're sitting down with attorneys to, to kind of arbitrate and mediate a divorce, then Jesus will do what it, what it takes to get us to pay attention. Now, let me just say this. Jesus does not hate people who have gone through divorces. Jesus does not hate people who have committed adultery. Right? Jesus doesn't hate you. Jesus hates the sin that would want to destroy you. Right? But Jesus does not hate you. And we're going to find out here in just a minute that that's true. Right? But I need to get this. God saying don't commit adultery and Jesus taking it one step further in dealing with our hearts and minds isn't to be a buzzkill or to ruin our fun. The reason that they're talking about this, it's to protect the goodness of intimacy and to save our lives and the lives of those people connected to us from experiencing the ultimate form of heartache and betrayal. It's important for us, right, as we dive into this, that we see this and understand this from Jesus' perspective. Because we're about to see Jesus does not dispute the charges brought against this woman. Jesus doesn't go, whoa, objection, right? Jesus doesn't dispute, he doesn't refute the claim of guilt. But, again, catch this, different perspective. We know Jesus' perspective. He cares about us does not want to see anything or anyone steal, kill, or destroy the parts of us that he, say, he says are good, great, right, true, and best, right? We know that. Now, the Pharisees, different perspective. From their perspective, through their lens, they're not interested in this woman, right? They're, they are not interested in saving her from this sin in her life. They're not going, Jesus, listen, I mean, we got this girl, she's in trouble, Right? She's, she's been sleeping around with all kinds of guys. Like We, we caught her in the act, and, and Jesus, we're really concerned for her soul. That's not what they're saying. They don't care about her. They don't care about the condition of her soul. They don't care about the condition of her body. They don't care what people have done to her. They don't care about her mental status. They don't care about her emotions. They don't care about her feelings. They don't care about her. They're more interested in trying to destroy Jesus' reputation, his influence, and his movement, and this woman is just the bait. And in this scenario, these guys, they're calling back to the punishment that was due for adultery that came from the law of Moses. The law of Moses, first five books of the Bible, okay? Here's what it says in Leviticus chapter 20. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Again, they're missing about half the equation here, right? They just brought the girl. They didn't bring the guy. We don't know why. They just brought the girl. We can speculate. They just brought the girl. They left, part of the, they left half the equation out, right? Deuteronomy 22 says this, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge evil from Israel. You shall bring them both out to the gates of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. I want you to catch this. 
that, that in the Old Testament, the dude's mentioned first. Right? The dude is the one that's held primarily responsible and primarily accountable. Just like when God went to Adam, like when Adam and Eve were lost in the garden, right? We're hiding in the garden, even though Eve was the one that took the, the fruit, right? What is, who does God call first? Adam. Adam, where are you? Like there's something different here. These guys, they, what you can tell is by just bringing the girl, they've got an agenda. They're looking to do something here. Now, here's a tip, all right, for, for those of us that would want to try to trap Jesus. Don't, right? First suggestion is this. Don't use a person that he created and cares about as bait. You're not going to get on his good side by doing that, right? And don't quote scripture at him because he wrote it, right? Not a good idea. It's like, Jesus, did you know what it says? He's like, uh-huh, yep, was there, wrote it. Know exactly what it says. So, so that's probably two things right off the bat. Don't use a person he cares about and don't use scripture because he wrote it. But in their minds, this cancel mob, right, they were so caught up in the undertow, so caught up in the current. They were riding the waves of hate and anger and outrage that they think they've got Jesus cornered three different ways. One is this. If Jesus says, you're right, she did this, you caught her, right, let's go ahead. She deserves to die. Let's kill her. If he says that, See, then the religious leaders and the Pharisees can look at everybody there that came to listen to Jesus and go, see, we told you. We told you that he's not who he says he is. We told you that when the chips are down, he'll end up being cruel and judgmental. We told you so. One commentary I read said this, that Jesus, had he said go for it, would have completely lost his reputation for compassion and mercy. They wanted to destroy that. So they were hoping Jesus would go, you know what, guys? Yeah, you bring a pretty good point. You make a pretty good argument. You got the scriptures to back it up. All right, let's do it. The second way they think they got Jesus cornered, if Jesus says don't kill her, if Jesus jumps in the middle, they can say, well, Jesus doesn't really care about God's word. Jesus doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about what God said. And again, the same commentary I read said this. If Jesus refused to confirm the death penalty, he could have actually been charged with contradicting the law, and then Jesus himself would have faced condemnation. And as we start talking about condemnation, I need us to understand what that means. What it means to be condemned is that you have been charged, you are guilty, you have been sentenced, and there is no way out. There is no appeal, there is no objection, there is no way out. You're, you're charged, you're guilty, you're condemned. Here is your sentence. The only thing you're waiting on is for it to be executed, which in this day, you were waiting for yourself to be executed, and there was no way out. So they thought, well, if he goes against us, then we can actually bring charges against him, and he'll be condemned, and there's no way out. And the third way they've got, they feel like they got Jesus cornered is this. If Jesus actually does allow them to go through with it, they can actually bring charges against him to the Romans. Because the Romans who had taken over Israel at this time, they occupied their country. See, the Romans made it illegal for anyone other than themselves to sentence and exercise the death penalty. They said, listen, like, we're the only ones that can do that. Like, you can't do that anymore, which is why when you go to, like, Jesus' trial, right, they have to go to, to a Roman. They have to go to Pilate. Pilate has to be the one to, to sentence him to death. They can't do it themselves. They weren't allowed to do that. And, Jesus, and they say, listen, if he says we can kill her, then we don't actually have to kill her. We can take him to the Romans and say, see, we told you, right, this guy's trying to overthrow your authority. You don't like that. You should kill him. That's kind of how this works. So the Pharisees, they're thinking we can discredit Jesus by possibly bringing religious charges against him. We can maybe even get Jesus condemned by bringing charges to him against the Romans, right? We, there's three ways we can get him here. So let's pick back up. Check out verse 6. Jesus' response to the cancel culture mob, to the, to, to the waves, the tide, the current of cancel culture, Jesus bends down and writes with his finger on the ground. I mean, it, you have to think in this moment, those guys would have been furious. Like, what's he doing? He's bending down, he's writing with his finger on the ground. And as they continue to ask him, Jesus, what do you want us to do? I mean, you, this wasn't like a just sit back and like, Jesus, what do you want us, what are you going to do about this, Jesus? Huh? Oh, we caught her. Law says she has to die. Jesus, what do you say? What do you say? Jesus, what do you say? He says he stood up and said this, let him with who is out sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Now, this is a famous moment in Scripture, right? We, we've, we talk about this even in our culture, even in secular culture, they talk about this. Like, like we aren't going to be the ones that throw stones. Let, let those who are without sin be the ones to, to throw. Don't be judgmental, right? Like, that's, this is a famous moment in Scripture. It's talked about all over the place. And so in this moment, what we've done so far is we've seen things through Jesus' perspective. We've seen, we know the perspective of the religious and self-righteous cancel mob. We know what their agenda is. We know what they're after. But in this, what I want to do, because I think this will help change the story a little bit, because a lot of us probably should have heard this before. What I want us to do is I want us to look at this through the perspective of this woman, who more than likely was a young woman, maybe even a teenager. Here's what we know. The Bible tells us that she's caught in the act of adultery. So that's not, here's what this means. It's not rumor. It's not hearsay. It's not just based on her reputation, you know, like, yeah, yeah, she's the kind of girl that would do something like that. No. No, and here's what happened. These Pharisees and these religious leaders, they kicked in the door early that morning or maybe even the night before, and they caught her in the act. She was guilty. She knew she was guilty. Imagine this, all right? Imagine you're, you're caught in the act of some sin. And here's what I'm saying. Don't get all self-righteous in this moment. I go, like, I, I would never know what that's like. I, I don't know what it's like to sin. Bull crap. Yeah, you do, right? Imagine you're caught in the act of some sin. And it's not hard for us to imagine. You already know what yours is because you're thinking about it. I already know what mine is because I'm thinking about it. Imagine you're caught in the act, right? The door gets kicked in, and it's people from church. And they drag you here on a Sunday morning. And they put you up on this stage, and they publicly broadcast for everyone to hear and everyone on the internet, right, what they caught you doing. We caught them doing fill in the blank. And now, because of that, we're going to take you out back, and we're going to throw rocks at you until you're dead. You'd be thinking probably what this woman is thinking right now. As she's standing in front of everyone at the temple, either naked or probably wrapped up in the scuzzy hotel blanket that she was in when they caught her. You're thinking this, just kill me now. Please, someone, get this over with. There's no coming back for this. There's no return from this. I, I cannot recover from this. Just let me die. But beyond that, I would imagine there's something in her mind that starts to ask this question. How did I get here? What happened in my life that I became something that's used and abused for somebody else's pleasure instead of someone? And by the way, she's still being used and abused this time. She's just being used by the religious leaders to bait and trap Jesus. She's still being used. You ever ask yourself that question? In those moments, just like she's sitting there going, you know what, this is, when I was a little girl, this is not what I thought my life would look like. You ever find yourself in a moment like that? Thinking if you could talk to four or five, six-year-old you, I bet in that moment you didn't think you'd be there. This moment where you're caught, you're guilty, you know it, everyone knows it, Jesus knows it. How did I get here? On the other hand, I bet this. I bet there have been times where you heard about somebody else getting caught. Or you heard the stories of people who thought they could get away with something and finally the truth comes out and finally justice gets served and we think to ourselves, well, this is what you get. Heavy editing right here. Mess around, find out. I mean, the Bible says this, God will not be mocked. So... You got what was coming to you. Here's what I know. We are really good when it comes to throwing stones at other people and thinking to ourselves, I would never do something like that. And you're right. You would never, I would never, until you did, until I did, 
until he did or until she did. And then we start to ask ourselves these questions, right? How did I get here? I said, I swore I would never do anything like this. How did this happen? How did I get here? And here's the deal. When I talk with couples or individuals that have dealt with the aftermath of adultery, when I do premarital counseling or, or marriage counseling or even counseling in the midst of a divorce, here's the common thread in these conversations. It's never about the sex. It's never just about the physical act. It's more about trying to satisfy the need to be wanted and desired. And the folks that I've prayed with and talked with and mourned with in these situations, they knew at the time, in the moment, the feeling of being desired in that moment wasn't real. It was only going to last a few hours, a few minutes. But in that moment, they knew, at least I could have it. At least I could have it for a minute or two. At least I could have it for an hour or so. I was lonely, and they paid attention to me. We drifted apart, and I just happened to end up with them. Well, they cheated on me, so I felt like I could cheat on them. Here's the deal. There's always a reason. Because, again, in our, in our lives, in our minds, like we're really good at throwing stones at other people because, yeah, we've got our stuff, but guess what? i got a reason for mine i got a reason for mine. We all have reasons behind our choices and our actions when it comes to our sin, those times that we disagree with God. We say, God, I know what you say, but I'm going to do what I want. And in our own minds, those are solid reasons. Well, I can do this. i got a good, I got a good reason. Here's my reason. My friend Jim said this, reasons for sin are not excuses that make it okay. I need us to hear that. I mean, if you walk away today and this is the only thing you get, get this. The reasons, your reasons, my reasons for the sin in our lives, they're not excuses that make it okay. And also this, saying something is a struggle, wow, you know, I don't really sin. I just kind of struggle with, it's sin, right? You have a sin struggle. Just taking the word out doesn't make it any less or more sin, right? The reasons sin. They're not excuses that make it okay. It's not like when Jesus goes, hey, let's talk about this part of your life. You go, well, here's my reason. And Jesus goes, well, when you put it that way, seems good. Here's the truth, church. God will not bless anything that would kill, steal, and destroy us, no matter how good you think your reasons are for doing it. God's not going to bless it. He's not going to go, all right, you have my permission. Go. Go and sin. Go and blow up your life and somebody else's. Your reasons were good enough you convinced me. Let's jump back into John. Jesus, he bends down and starts writing in the dirt on the floor. And we don't know what he writes. We have no idea what Jesus wrote in the dirt on the floor. I read several articles about this this week. Some scholars argue that Jesus was writing down a list of all the sins and lives of the Pharisees and the accusers of this woman, just writing down all their sins. Just right there for them to see. Some scholars cite Exodus, like 30, Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 9. Both Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 9, they both talk about how the, the commandments, the law, right, were written by the finger of God in things like clay and dirt. And they're saying this is the exact same thing, right? The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments in clay and dirt way back in the Old Testament. And here in this moment, the finger of God in Jesus is writing out things in clay and dirt, writing out truth in clay and dirt for everybody to see. It's the same thing. Just God writing out truth in clay and dirt for people to see. My friend Jim said that Jesus could have been writing out the names. Like, Frank, here's your sin. And Bob, here's what you're guilty of, right? But regardless, whether it was the secret sins of the people in the room, or, or, or maybe it was the names of the people in the room that were guilty, or maybe it was just the finger of God like it did in Exodus and Deuteronomy, writing out truth in clay and dirt for everybody to see. Whatever it was, it worked. Just check out verse 7. It says this, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is out without sin be the first one to throw a stone. And once more he bent down in the ground and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones first, to the point where Jesus was left alone with the woman who was standing before him. Like I said before, Jesus doesn't dispute the charge. Jesus says, you're right. She sinned. She's guilty. And we know what the wages of sin are, right, boys? Right? 
You know what you're owed when you sin? What you get in return for sin is death. So if anybody hasn't sinned, go ahead, get her. And get this, Jesus was the only one in the situation that could have thrown a stone. Jesus could have said, hey, listen, if anybody hasn't sinned, uh, you go ahead and throw, throw the first stone. I'll start. Wham! Right? Like Jesus could have done that. But Jesus, the only one that could have thrown a stone, never even picked one up. And so they start to walk away, the older ones first, which is kind of a funny detail to add. One author said this, the older accusers left first either because they had more sin in their lives or because they had more sense than to make an impossible profession of perfect self-righteousness. Like, (laughs) no one had the guts to stand there and go, yeah, I don't have any sin. So now we're left with Jesus and this woman, just the two of them. And in verse 10, John says this, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? Has no one levied a sentence on you, charged you, declared you guilty, and said, you're going to be charged, you're sentenced, and there's no way out? Has anyone done that to you? She says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says this, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. So go, and from now on, sin no more. One author about this moment said this, meeting a man who was more interested in saving her rather than exploiting her and who was set on forgiving her rather than condemning her must have been an entirely new experience for this woman. Because odds are, this was her life. Odds are, this was her life. This is what she did to make a living. All she knew was shame and condemnation. Her life was like playing with a hand grenade. It's only going to go, it's only a matter of time before it goes off in your face eventually. And you and I both know this to be true, right? We know what this is like because here's the thing. We don't need to be reminded of, the own, our, of our own mess in our lives, right? We know it's there. You know that mess is in your life. I know the mess is in my life. It's just buried underneath all of our efforts to cover it up. And the shame and the condemnation that we feel usually are the reasons we run back to that mess in the first place. Because what we find in sin is this means of escape. The same was true about this woman, except in this case, Jesus offers her a new way out. As we said at the start of the series, some of us in this series, over the course of the series, the best three words that we'll ever hear will be this, from now on. Some of us have been needing to hear, hey, There's a from now on that's available to you. Jesus, he gives her a new way out. From now on, he says. Same author I read said that condemnation is replaced with forgiveness, but forgiveness demands a clean break from sin. Which is why Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but from now on, like he he says, I I don't condemn you, but from now on, sin no more, right? Some, Some of your translations say this, leave this life of sin. Jesus says to this woman, right, I don't condemn you, but here's a new way out. Jesus isn't saying this, whew, girl, you were lucky I was here. You got a pass this time. That's not Jesus, that's not what he's saying. Jesus doesn't ever give us a pass on sin, right? And I've talked with a lot of Christians who like to play the grace card where it's like, well, I'll do this, and, and Jesus is, forg- is going to forgive me anyway, so I'll just do what I want, and then I'll ask for forgiveness afterwards. Can I just say this? That's not how it works, and that's stupid, That's dumb. That's cheap grace. And here's what you're doing when you take that kind of mindset of, well, I'll just do what I want, and then I'll ask Jesus for, for, I'll just say, Jesus, will you forgive me for this after I do it? Essentially what you're doing is you're telling Jesus this, your life, your death, and your resurrection, all of that is just a pass for me to be able to do whatever I want and not feel guilty about it. If you want to have that conversation with Jesus, go ahead. Good luck. But can I just say this, church? Grace doesn't make sin safe. It doesn't. Grace doesn't make sin safe. And the truth is this. Because of grace, we are saved from eternal condemnation. We are saved from the eternal consequences of sin. But, church, this is also true. We are not safe from the real-time consequences that come from the moments that we look at God and say, get out of my way, let me do what I want. 
Those consequences result in things like lost marriages, lost families, lost jobs, lost credibility, lost character, lost integrity. Are you forgiven by Jesus? Yes. But do you really want to risk losing all of that? One quote I read said this, a full life, the life that Jesus wants for us, the abundant life, the with God life, right, comes along with sin stopping. That's not conditional, it's a byproduct, right? Jesus isn't saying, listen, if you, if you can just stop, if you would just stop sinning, then I'll give you a good life. No, Jesus says this, hey, a good life comes from putting sin behind you. A good life comes from repenting, turning away from that thing that you continually run back to to escape from the mess in your life. Actually, what I have for you is better. And so here are my three questions today, and we'll wrap things up. Would you want to, would you like to rethink your life knowing that condemnation has been canceled and that forgiveness, a new way out, a new way into a new life is now on the table? Would you like to rethink your life in light of the fact that you're not condemned, that you're not too broken, that you're not too messy, that you're not too far gone, would you like to, would you like to change the direction of your life? Would you like to rethink your life knowing that you can make a clean break from the sin in your life and Jesus will help you? This church will help you. The friends, the brothers and sisters you have in this place will help you. Would you like to rethink your life knowing that a full life apart from sin, that's better than anything you could ever imagine, is what awaits you. If your answer to those questions are yes, you have two deals on the table. We say this a lot here. Right, we say this a lot. You got two deals on the table, right? So here are your two deals. Here's what you can do. If you're like, yeah, I would like to rethink my life. I would like to make some changes. Here are your two deals. Number one, do nothing. Do nothing. Make no changes. Keep crossing your fingers and hoping you don't get caught. Continue to live with the shame of what you've done and the fear that somebody might find out. Keep rehearsing the conversations that justifies your reasons for when you do get caught. Do nothing. Do nothing. That's your first deal. Deal number two. Take that part of your life to Jesus, knowing that you'll be forgiven, and then do whatever he tells you to do with it next. Going back a couple weeks ago, I love that, that when, when Mary and Jesus have the conversation at the wedding feast, when it's clear that Jesus is going to respond and he's going to save some people from disgrace, Mary looks at the, the servants and says, they say, she says this, do whatever he tells you to do. It's the same thing for us today. If your answer to those questions is, yeah, I'd like to rethink my life, and I'm tired of taking deal number one, I'm tired of doing nothing, I want to do something about this, take it to Jesus and then do whatever he tells you to do next, which may mean this, you have to confess. You have to sit down with me, somebody on our staff, our elders. You gotta confess, you gotta tell the truth. You have to have the conversation with your spouse. You have to tell them the truth. You have to search out and find real accountability instead of just people that will go, hey, hey you get a pass, man, it's okay, it's all right. Sit with people who will look at you and say, no, let's, Let's make a clean break from this. We can help. And like Jesus says, you have to leave your life of sin behind to step into the full life that God desires for you. So which deal do you want? Same old, same old, same old, or do you want to make some changes? Because here's the truth, and I'm almost done, right? Our mess will find its way into the light eventually. You have two ways of making this happen. Either you can bring it there yourself, or it's going to get dragged there at some point. And the truth is this, if sin kills and steals and destroys us, and God really does love us, he's going to take sin away from us at some point. Why? Because he loves you too much to let that thing kill you, steal from you, and destroy your life. I love Paul says this in Ephesians 5, he says, but, whenever, but anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, which means this, the light shines on the mess that you try to hide in your life. And anything that becomes visible is light, so... Paul says this, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Guess what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will stomp on you. It doesn't say, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shame you to death. It says, awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
that's the result of bringing things into the light. Is it easy? No. Does it mean having some hard conversations, confessing some truth? Yes. But that's the result. Christ will not stomp on you. Christ will not shame you. Christ will shine on you. He'll help find all those things in your life that are wanting to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you. And he'll help remove those things, to rip them out by the root. He'll surround you with people in a church like this, people who don't think they have it all together, people who are not self-righteous, people who don't want to point their fingers at you, people who lean and go, you know, I get it, me too. That's what this place is built on. He'll surround you with people like that that can help you make a clean break into a new life. And so my question for us today is, what do you want? Would you like to rethink your life in light of this? Or do you want to do nothing and just stay put? You're missing out on the light and life of Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. And in this moment, we're going to worship. We're going to sing an amazing song here in just a second that I think fits exactly with what we're talking about today. So I just want to tell you that just make, make this next worship song your prayer. I know the end worship song is when we start looking at our watch going, I think we're going to get out of here soon. It's when your brain starts to shift to what's comes, what comes next. Don't do that. Stay in this moment. Sing this song like you've never sung it before. Make it a prayer, a prayer maybe you've never even prayed before. Let Jesus uncancel you. Let him cancel condemnation by offering forgiveness. Let him lead you into a clean break, into a new way of living. If you want to talk about what it means to accept Jesus, I'd love to meet you down front. If you want to talk about what it looks like to join this church, I'd love to meet you down front. If you need to pray, if you need to pray with someone, I'd be happy to pray with you. You can also come up here and spend some time in front of the cross. There's a place you can sit here. If you want to pray there, you can do that. Make this song your prayer. Don't step out of this moment. Don't detach or disengage from where you are right now. Because I can feel it in this room. We are all going yeah, Brad, I would like that. I just don't know if I can do it. And the answer is this. You can't. Jesus can. He's ready to help. But you got to let him in. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And we are so grateful that you do not stomp on us or shame us, but you shine your light on us and in and through our lives. Jesus, I pray that over this, the next few minutes as we sing this song, Lord, that we would sing this song in a way that we've never sung it before, that instead of just singing the words that we've seen on a screen, Lord, that we would see ourselves in the way that you move, that we would see ourselves in the story, that, Lord, that we would see ourselves in the places that you come in and you shine your light and you bring life and you bring a new way of living. Jesus, today, would things change in our lives? Would we have the hard conversations? Would we, would we have the courage to confess Lord, and may we make clean breaks and step into new ways of living where your light shines on us. May we awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead so that Christ, so that you will shine on us. Jimmy, pray. Amen.